Amen. Powerful truth. And that's our theme for the year. To be faithful in the work. To walk by faith and not by sight. We're in Zechariah this morning. Zechariah chapter 14, which means we are at the end of this book. It's been uh, quite a journey as we've worked through Zechariah together. And now we come to the last chapter. And this has been uh, quite, uh, quite an interesting book. Dreams, visions, some weird things, some prophetic things. And uh, some of it already having come true, some of it still yet to come true. Uh, but it's been a faith-building book for me personally, and I hope it has been for you as well. Zechariah 13 last week was nine verses. Zechariah 14 is 21 verses. I had a hard time getting through the nine last week. And this morning, let's just say we went over a little bit. So some of you with the roast in the oven start praying. No, but I've trimmed a couple things, I think. And hopefully we'll be able to get through all 21 verses here. But not just get through it, but I trust really come to a good conclusion for this powerful book and that God would help us to catch the message and to take heart to be faithful in the work. As I have said many times as we have looked at this passage, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah were commissioned of God to go to a people whose faith was failing. They had given up on the work. They were commissioned to build a temple for God, to rebuild the temple. They had quit. They had begun to become just part of the people, just getting absorbed into the culture, into the lifestyle, just living their lives. And hey, can we blame them? We do the same thing. But it's not right. And Haggai and Zechariah were commissioned of God to go back and preach to these people and to stir them up to faith and good works and to finish the work of building that temple for God. After that temple was built, of course, the walls were built. Last year we looked at that as we saw the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. As we get to chapter 14, you say, how's this supposed to be encouraging? Well, it is all very encouraging. And Zechariah encouraged these people by giving them some prophecies of things that would take place immediately in their day or shortly after their day. Then there was the prophecy of the first coming. And then there is the prophecy of the second coming. As they looked at Zechariah, they couldn't get as much out of it as we do because we look at it and say most of it's been fulfilled. And we say, wow, this is faith building. If all this came true, then chapter 14, which is all future, Chapter 14 is going to come true. We have so much more to go on as we look at this book than they did back in their day. If you look at the, if there's a heading in your Bible, it probably says the day of the Lord over chapter 14. Some of you don't have headings. Those are not necessarily part of the scripture, but many publishers put them in there. And that's what we're looking at this morning, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord, Zechariah 14, 1 through 21. We're not going to read the whole thing at the beginning. I'll read a few verses and pray, and then we'll work through each of these verses together, drawing application, and I do believe it has a very powerful, uh, a powerful ending. Behold, verse 1 says, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses rifled, and the women ravished, and half of the city shall go forth into captivity and the residue of the people shall not be cut off from the city then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives which is before Jerusalem on the east and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west <clears throat> and there shall be a very great valley and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. And it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night. But it shall come to pass that at evening time shall be light, and it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea, and half of them toward the hinder sea. In the summer and winter shall it be, 
And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day shall there be one Lord and his name one. Lord, help us as we look at this passage. I pray that you'd help me with the time as we've got a lot to cover. Help us with the application and the understanding of it. Lord, most importantly, may we be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving our own selves. Lord, help us to know that none of us receive any points for having heard this this morning. All we receive is is more accountability for what we've heard. Help us, Lord, to be faithful and to do what you ask of us here this morning to respond to you in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to the climax of the whole book, chapter 14, as he is wrapping it all up. And uh, you and I might look at this and say, wow, this is not much of a wrap-up. This is a whole bunch of new material. And, and uh, uh, yet it, it, it is a wrap-up as he is not just talking about the final chapter of his book. He's talking about the final chapter in humanity. We're going to talk about the millennium here. So I want to tell you real quickly, uh, we might skip some notes, Chris, so do your best to, to, to pop around with me. But there is three views on the millennium. There's the premillennial view, the postmillennial view, and the amillennial view. Uh, we would look at this from a premillennial perspective. And this is important because depending on which view you take, Zechariah means different things. All right, so the, the, the views are, are simply this. Uh, the premillennial view means that Jesus will return before the millennium to set up a literal 1,000-year reign on the earth prior to the final judgment. Uh, the judgment of Satan, and the entrance into the eternal state. There's some key characteristics about premillennial, premillennialism. It's a hard one to say, and I've got to say it a lot. Uh, the key characteristics are this. A literal view of Scripture is, is key. We believe that the Bible should be interpreted in its literal, historical, exegetical, grammatical, normal sense. In other words, we don't get to pick and choose what it means. You know, I think this picture's this. I think this is a symbol of that. No, if the Bible teaches it's a symbol, then it's a symbol. Otherwise, we take it literally. So that's the premillennial view, postmillennial. This is the idea that the millennium is a period of time, not necessarily a literal 1,000 years, where Christ's reign, and I put that in quotation marks, Christ's reign will gradually increase due to the fact that the gospel will eventually have such a profound impact on the world that, th- that the world becomes Christianized. That's the idea of post-millennialism. That people just eventually become more Christianized and, and we kind of take over government and take over the world. The, that's why a lot of songs from this bent uh, talk about bringing in the day of, of the kingdom or bringing in the kingdom, ushering in the kingdom. In other words, that Jesus isn't coming back until we usher in this kingdom. A different view And uh, the key there is that they see that the church is the replacement for Israel. So the church gets all the blessings, Israel gets all the curses. That's how they would see it. And uh, there's an allegorical or symbolic view of the scripture. Uh, So we believe that there is a distinction between the church and Israel, that God has a real place for Israel. And Zechariah tells us that if you take it literally. Amillennialism is the belief that holds that millennial kingdom is now and has been since the resurrection. In other words, ah means no, no millennium. Uh, if there is a millennium, it's just been ever since the resurrection. Uh, and, and this again would hold to an allegorical or symbolic view of scripture. Uh, I believe if you, if you cherish the word of God and you believe that every word is important, the premillennial view is, is the, does the most respect to the word of God. We hold a high view of scripture and we wanna take the scriptures literally and it's normal in intended sense. So we come to this chapter, we're going to look at the millennium a little bit, and that's the perspective that we're going to have on that. But then we need to define the day of the Lord. So what is the day of the Lord? It is that period of time beginning with the rapture of the church and extending through the millennial kingdom. That period of time beginning with the rapture of the church and extending through the millennial kingdom. So the rapture is part of this day. The Armageddon, judgment of the nations, establishment of the kingdom, the reign of Christ for a thousand years, Satan being bound, and all of that is part of the day of the Lord. We say, that's a one big day. All right. Well, we take the Bible in its literal but normal sense. And so this is a normal way of using the day, the word day. We would say the day of space travel. Was that one day? No, we're in the day of space travel. Uh, Or the day of... Uh, technology or the day of whatever. Uh, We're talking about 
uh, a certain period of time that, it, that, that, in this sense, is God's day. It's His time. There's man's day, and now there's going to be the day of the Lord. Now, as we look at this chapter, you're going to notice that we're going to cover some things already covered in the book. In chapter 12, we had Armageddon. In chapter 13, you have the people's response to seeing the Lord and the fountain opened and they repent, they repent and they're restored and they're, they're saved, redeemed. Uh, and so as the prophets would, would, would preach, they were like you and I in, in, in this respect. You ever tell a story and there's one particular point in the story you really want to get to? And so you might move through some details a little bit more quickly, not telling all the details because you want to get to this point. When you get to that point, well, that was chapter 12. He wanted to get to the point. Uh, Jesus comes, and, and he defeats the foes, and they look at this victor, and they say, who is it? Who is it? And they look upon him whom they have pierced. And boy, what a dramatic part in that passage where they all of a sudden, instead of going into their victory dance... <laughs> They fall to their knees and they worship and they repent. And then chapter 13 goes right out of that with the fountain that's open for their cleansing. And so that was the main point the prophet wanted us to know then. So he skipped a bunch of detail. But you ever tell a story and you, you, you skip some details, you get to your main point, and then you realize, now I need to go back and cover some of those details. And so you might back up. I do this all the time. Forwards, backwards forwards, backwards, you know. And that's what the prophet does here. Now in chapter 14, he's going to go back and say, okay, I, I want to cover some of the detail that I missed. Because you could say, whoa, we're talking about the same thing that he was talking about in chapter 12, but he didn't cover half of the stuff in chapter 12. That's okay. He's allowed to do that. You do the same thing. You're allowed to go back and forth. Now we're going to step back and fill in some more detail. So that's what it is. If we look at the day of the Lord, some more detail will be given. And as we're coming on the scene, behold, the day of the Lord cometh. What all has been happening up to this point? Israel has been regathered. We're seeing this happen now. Israel was recognized a, a nation, and they're still in unbelief concerning the Messiah. Uh, but they, they are being protected right now. That little nation is protected. Uh, and, and they will continue to be there waiting for Messiah, they will ultimately make a pact with a false Messiah, the foolish shepherd that we talked about earlier in chapter 12, I believe it was. Um, they will make a, a pact with a false Messiah. For three and a half years, this goes great. And then he says, now it's time for you to worship me. He desecrates their temple and uh, he breaks his covenant with them, demands that they worship him alone. They refuse. And at their refusal, he gathers all of his armies, all the armies of the world that come to descend on Jerusalem to wipe them out. And this is the great siege that we looked at, first of all, in chapter 12, and now it's again in chapter 14. This siege follows, which leads to Armageddon. Look at it here in verse 1. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, and thy spoil shall be divided in the midst of thee. Chapter 12 didn't go into that. You know, chapter, chapter 12 focused more on the victory side, Jesus coming and, 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 and pushing them all back, and they look on him who they pierced. But what we don't realize in chapter 12 is that there was a lot of carnage that took place up to that point. And those armies that come, the Antichrist, they are, at the beginning, they have the victory. It looks like it's over. And they are so confident of their victory, they don't take the spoils home to divide it out. They sit down right there, the Bible says, in the midst. And they're, they're dividing the spoil and the job's not even done yet. A little overconfident. But look at verse 2. For I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle. Now this phrase can be a little bit disturbing because when you read what comes after it, it's not good what comes after. And then to couple that with the phrase, I will gather, means God seems to have had something to do with this. And that can be troubling to us. Well, I think it, it should, our, our response really should be this. One response is, is one of comfort, but one is also one of fear, meaning this. It is comforting to know that anything and everything that happens in this world goes through God. Anything that you would call evil still cannot get past God. Anything that is good, God knows of that and is involved in that. God's involved in everything. And so on one side, when I read the words, I will gather, just before we talk about the worst thing to ever happen in human history, it's comforting to know that this is not a surprise to God. God is gathering. 
The second response is not just one of comfort, it should be one of fear. There should be a fear of the Lord. And, and it is obvious that here, God is one who is, who, who is worthy of, of that fear. In other words, a respect, an awe. He does not look lightly upon sin and evil, and he is the judge that the Bible says will do right. The judge of all the earth shall do right. He gathers them. I will gather all nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken. Now, why is he doing this? There's two reasons he is doing this. One, he is gathering these armies together as instruments of his judgment. In other words, they think they're doing their will, but no, they're actually going to accomplish some things that is his will, and his will is to judge and, and to judge for sin. And you can look through the Bible and you could put together all of the instances where God did this, and it would be a long sermon if I tried to preach it, and it'd be an ominous one, of all the times where God uses another nation to do his judgment. Also, you'll notice, if you were to look at that study, that the people oftentimes who God is using as instruments of judgment, they oftentimes go beyond. And God is not in favor of that, and God has to deal with them. And you see that here as well, them going and, and, and horrible things happening to their women and, and, and just pillaging and houses rifled and captivity and everything. But a residue, a remnant is left. That's important to note. So one thing that's happening here is God is, is gathering them as instruments of judgment, but there's another convenient thing that he's doing. He's not only just using them as instruments of judgment, he is gathering them to be judged themselves all in one place and all at one time. It's both. And it all happens at this spot where so much has already happened in history. And we talked about that a couple of chapters ago. Well, we keep moving through, and the Bible says that there will be a residue, so they're not all going to be uh, killed. But then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. As we go through chapter, 13, uh, chapter 14, if you remember chapter 12 at all, there's going to be times where chapter 12 will flicker into chapter 14, and this is one of them. This, is, this, this reminds us of chapter 12. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Well, we remember seeing that a few verses ago. He comes in and he fights, and judgment is done. Look at this, though, in verse 4. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives. I didn't give you the outline, I forgot. We have four points, I'll just give it to you real quick and I'm going to forget the outline, we'll just go back and work through the text. The return of the king is verses 1 through 8. Then uh, the rule of the king, verses 9 through 11. The retribution of the king is 12 through 15. And the righteousness of the king is 16 through 21. So we're looking at the return of the king right now. This has nothing to do with a Tolkien novel. All right, this is the real thing right here. The return of the king, verses 1 through 8. We're on verse 4. His feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof. Now think this through. Picture this. The Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. So let's put the map up there that hopefully we can picture this a little bit. So you've got Jerusalem on the west. You've got Bethany on the east. You've got the Mount of Olives in between, if you can see that. It's small, sorry. There's the Mount of Olives right in between. So the Mount of Olives is on the east side of Jerusalem. And if you just look at this, it says it's going to break half of the mountain going north. Isn't that what it says? Half of the mountain going south. And this valley then will go east and west. Well, why is that important? I mean, so is the Lord just wanting to make a big show? When I come back, I'm coming back in style. Kaboom! Now, all of this is actually very practical. It is serving a very practical purpose that we're going to see. But before we do, let's see where else is this talked about. Zechariah is known in this book for having some strange visions, seeing some weird things. And you could say, Buddy, will you stop eating pizza before you go to bed? I mean, you keep having these weird dreams, but it's not just him. 
Micah, and I don't, I don't have these extra verses in your notes, so don't be looking for that on the screen or if you download the notes. I'm just going to rattle off a few verses here because we've got to move fast. Micah says, the Lord cometh, Micah 1.3, the Lord cometh forth out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains shall be molten under him and the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire and the waters that are poured down a steep place. Micah talked about it. Nahum 1.5, the mountains quake at him and the hills melt and the earth is burned at his presence. Yea, the world and all that dwell therein. Revelation 16.18 also deals with it. In other words, this is something that many prophets saw from many different angles. And they say it a little bit differently because maybe God showed it to him a little bit different. You know, if, if we all looked at, if we were all in the Michigan Stadium watching a football game, and I'm sitting in the end zone, and you're on the 50-yard line, and somebody else is in the nodes bleeds, and we all detailed what we saw, we would all have different perspectives, right? That's what it is with this. Each of these guys say it a little bit differently, but they're talking about the same thing. Something's going to happen. There's going to be a great earthquake, and this thing, this, this mountain's going to split. Well, Let's talk about this earthquake for a moment. It says, uh, in verse 5, And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. I'll come back to that. Yea, ye shall flee like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. Okay, so he references this earthquake. Now, we don't know anything about this earthquake. Or what is this earthquake? He's talking to people who lived a long time ago. The original audience that Zechariah is talking to would have known exactly what he was talking about. There was an earthquake in the time of King Uzziah that grandma and grandpa have handed down that story and, and they have continued to tell that and it was a big deal. And Amos chapter 1 verse 1 talks about it. Amos is another prophet and this is the first verse he ever writes. Amos 1 1 and he introduces himself by talking about this earthquake. Amos 1.1, the words of Amos, who was among the herdmen of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. This earthquake was such a big deal that when, when it's time for Amos the prophet to introduce who he is, I'm Amos, I'm a herdman from Tekoa, I served under Uzziah, I, oh, but two years before the earthquake. Like, oh, got it, everybody knows, they got, okay, we know where you were in history. This was a big deal. Now, I preached this this morning, and then somebody came up to me afterwards and said, Pastor, have you seen this? And I hadn't. And they forwarded me this link from CBN News. And this is from August 4th, just not too long ago, of 2021. Israeli archaeologists find biblical evidence uh, find evidence of the biblical earthquake in ancient Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah. Now, there you go. Uh, eventually, archaeology and science catches up with the Bible. But the Bible has been ahead of the game th for the whole game. And I thought that, that was interesting. That was just August 4th. That comes out. They found the evidence of the earthquake. Well, folks, we have the evidence. It was right here in Scripture. This huge earthquake that happens when God comes back Jesus Christ touches that mount. He will split that mount. And it's going to be bigger than even the earthquake that they're still talking about in the days of, of, of Uzziah. Now, why is this so important? We'll see several more things. Christ comes back to this mount because it was promised that he would. Acts 1.11 says, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye up gazing into heaven? Remember, the angel said, what are you looking at? The same Jesus which is taken up from you into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. He went up from the mount. He's coming back to the mount. But when he comes back, it's going to be under different circumstances. He's coming back as a king. He's coming back to, to, to rescue his people. And he's going to split that mountain. And there will be a valley there. He will rescue them and judge the world and set up his kingdom. Now... Before we go on, it's important for us to understand why God does it this way. Go back to that map, if you would. Uh, we'll put that map back on the screen, and, and you've got uh, all of the world coming in on Jerusalem. And their backs are against the walls, and it's over. It's so over that verse 1 says they're already doling out the spoils. 
Hey, hey, here's for you, Bob. Hey, here you go, Peter. Hey, can we finish the, the war? No, forget that. You know, these guys are done. Let's go ahead and split up the spoils now. It is over with. The people are just waiting to die. And Jesus says, no, not happening. I'm coming. And in and, and, and verse 3, he goes forth and he fights and he touches down on that mount and it splits. Now what this is, folks, really, for the Israelites, this is deja vu. Remember Egypt? When the, 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 the Pharaoh finally let them go, and his heart was hard, and it, he, he wouldn't let him go, go for the longest time. All the plagues happened, and no, I'm not going to let him go. And finally, his son gets killed. All the firstborn gets killed. Fine, you can take him. Let him go. And he thinks better of it. You know, the human heart is really, really hard. The human heart is capable of incredible evil and wickedness. Don't let anybody tell you that, that humanity is basically good. Just We just need some tweaking. No, we are basically evil. And so Pharaoh says, <coughs> go back after them. They get the armies, they get the chariots, and they chase them. And where do they chase them to? <coughs> they chase them right up against the Red Sea. And what do the Israel, Israelites do? They look, and they have the Red Sea on this side. They look behind them, and there's all the armies. And they look around, and they say, we're done. We're going to die. And they help, Lord. <coughs> and the Lord says, Stretch out your staff, Moses. Moses does it. And that whole thing, that whole Red Sea, just uh, go, goes, the water parts and, and the, the, the dry land appears and they go across on dry land and they escape out of that. And what happens to the Egyptians? They say, well, it worked for them. Let's try it. You know what? Sin will make you stupid. You'll, you won't think right. You'll do the dumbest things. When your heart is hard, who in their right mind would just go through all of those plagues, have their firstborn killed, come to this moment of victory only to have the water move, and there go the people. And you say, yeah, that worked. let's follow them. Well, they follow them to their doom. The waters enclose upon them, and they are dead. And that scene that began their pilgrimage to God's promised land is the scene that God recreates at the end of the chapter of their, of their story. You have them in Jerusalem. Where are we going to go? How do we get out of here? We're stuck. And God says, nope, I've got it. He comes down, boom. He touches the Mount of Olives. It splits. Half of the mountain goes to the north. Half of the mountain goes to the south. And there's a valley in between. And let's see that verse again. It says, uh, they shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and, uh, and toward the west. There'll be a very great valley Verse 5, ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Azal. Azal was right next to, it was near to Jerusalem. So what he's saying is, if you can go back to that, that map again, what he's saying is, I'm going to make that valley go all the way, basically all the way to you. All the way to Azal. I'm going to open it up, make a valley, and you can run. And they will flee into it. Now this is interesting because, I don't know if you've ever been in an earthquake, I don't, know if ever, I don't know if you've ever been on a mountain that was coming apart and coming down, but human instinct would not be to run to it. If you see it, 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 it split, and literally this split is now getting so large it's becoming a valley, and it's coming to you all the way to Azal, right next to Jerusalem. What are you going to do? Well, I'm out of here. No, they knew this was the Lord. They knew this was different. First of all, they knew it was behind them, so can you run that way? Here comes the Lord. He opens this up and he says, I'm going to make a way through the mountain. You know, that Red Sea was like a mountain. It was an obstacle they couldn't get through. God parted it. And now they're here with a real mountain. He splits it and they will flee into it and they will run to Christ. And it won't be long after this, verse chapter 12 comes into play. They'll look on him whom they've pierced. Wow. This is the Lord. He takes care of his own. What he did at the beginning, he will do in the end. Now let's look. At, I want you to see this because we've got we to see this. You and I are mentioned in this verse. We're here. Look at verse 5. <clears throat> he shall flee like ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. 
and the Lord my God shall come and all the saints with thee. That's the church. That's every saint. What does that mean? Saint Paul, Saint Peter? No, saints means believers. All the saints who have died in Christ will ride with Christ. And we will all be there to watch this unbelievable act of rescuing his people from absolute uh, atrocities going on. You know, so I'll stop right here and just say, someone might be thinking, <clears throat> why would God have any part in this? Why couldn't he just shut it down? I mean, God allows this to happen, this bloodbath, and Revelation says that the, 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 the blood will be as high as the, the, the horse's bridles. Why would God do this? God must be just this blood-loving, vengeful, wrathful God. And I would say no. God is a God of mercy and long-suffering and grace and goodness. You and I are the ones who are bent on these bloodbaths. And it is going to be only by the mercy of God and the goodness of God that humanity will even survive to appear in the first place. We are bent on atrocities and genocides and bloodbaths. Just look at what's going on in Afghanistan today. Uh, if you've read what I've read, if you've seen what I've seen, maybe you've seen things I haven't seen, the stories coming out of there, it is disgusting, it is horrible, it's, it, it, it is un inconceivable that, that men would do this to one another, but this is nothing new. What's happening in Afghanistan is nothing new. This is the story of humanity, one genocide after the next. One story of atrocities, of pride and power after the next. I stood in Cambodia in the killing fields where Pol Pot exterminated millions of his own people. And they, they took us to the graves. Some of the graves were still uh, untouched. Many of them they have excavated and taken all the bones and, and taken the bones out. But some of the graves were untouched and you could walk on top of these mass graves and the, the, the guides would tell us, now, now watch, they'd say, uh, bones are still working their way up through the soil. And if you find any, pick it up, bring it to us. We've got a big jar where we're putting it all. And sure enough, I saw the jar, big old jar full of bones and teeth. We're walking along. There's little scraps of T-shirts that are working their way up through the soil. One little kid walks along. Hey, Mom, a tooth. Mom says, sure enough. Gives it to the tour guide. The tour guide puts it in the bucket. Where I stood where people were just wiped out mercilessly. And then they took us to the killing tree. I really can't even talk about that with kids here. But they would take infants to the killing tree and they would dispatch them there. I stood there and looked at this tree where they said thousands of kids, little children were killed. I touched the tree. The tree was still scarred. The tree, the bark was, was forever mangled from what they did to the children and ultimately the tree took it as well. And you say, how in the world? How in the world uh, to be, are, are people like that? Folks, you, you don't understand how evil we are. The human heart is, is, deceit, is de deceitful above all things and desperately, hopelessly wicked. Apart from Jesus and his mercy, we would not even be alive today. We would have blown each other off the map. It is not God's fun to assemble this group. It is his finally putting an end, a merciful end, to our bent on evil and his rescuing of a remnant from that judgment. God is a good God and he is a just God. I wanted to make sure that you see this from a biblical perspective because so many will see at verse, chapter 14 and paint a picture of a cruel, awful God. That's not the case at all. We're looking at the return of the king. We saw the earthquake. We saw him split uh, that, that, that mountain and the people flee to him to be rescued. And we all come with him with his saint, as the saints, verse 6 and 7. But it shall come to pass in that day that the light shall not be clear nor dark, but it shall be one day which shall be known to the Lord, not day nor night, but it shall come to pass that evening time it shall be light, and then it talks about the waters. So let's talk about the light for a moment. <clears throat> all right. Uh, this is all prophesied in Scripture as well. There is no light. Isaiah 13, Joel 3, Matthew 24, Revelation 6, 12 through 14, all of these and many, many more talk about the fact that when God comes, 
it's not going to look like anything we've ever seen. I've seen some guys say it's going to go totally dark. Other guys say it's not going to be totally dark, just eerily dark. It's hard to tell what this is talking about. In fact, it says the day will only be known to the Lord. In other, in other words, none of us really know what this is going to be, and none of us can really explain it. It's just going to be different than anything you ever saw. Is it light? Is it dark? Is it day? Is it night? We can't really tell. It's going to be mass confusion, but God's going to come in judgment, and it's going to be something to see. Behold, the day of the Lord cometh, cruel, both with wrath and fierce anger, to lay desolate, desolate and he shall destroy the sinners thereof out of it. Isaiah 13, 9. Revelation 6, 12, And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, lo, there was an earthquake. We're reading about that in Zechariah. And the sun became black as sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood, and the stars of heaven fell unto the earth, even as a fig tree causeth her untimely figs when she is shaken in a mighty wind. Revelation, John the apostle wrote Revelation. He's telling this from a different perspective. It's all coming together though. There's going to be something with the sun, with the light. It's going to be very, very different. No light. Now verse 8. But something is going to happen as, as he is getting ready to rule and reign. He returns and living waters bubble up from where? Look at verse 8. It shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them toward the former sea and half of them toward the hinder sea. In summer and in winter shall it be. Well, this is talked about all through the Old Testament. Ezekiel 47, 1 through 4 confirms this. Isaiah, as he promised, he said the desert will bloom as the rose. God's going to come. He's going to touch down. He's going to split that mountain, create this valley. And as we're going to work through this passage, you're going to see very, very, uh, uh, several more uh, very significant changes to the geographical landscape. It's going to change. And one of the things is this water is going to break forth. The former sea is the Dead Sea. It's going to flow that direction to the Dead Sea. It's going to flow to the Hinder Sea, as it's mentioned. That's the Mediterranean Sea. And it says in summer and winter. What is that signifying? Summer and winter means this, this is one river. These rivers will never stop flowing. There's a lot of rivers that are seasonal. They flow in one season, but not the other. And, and there's, Africa has several, America, I'm sure, has several. They're seasonal rivers. They dry up half the year. This one's never going to dry up. That's what that phrase is, is calling out. Summer and winter, notwithstanding, this thing's going to flow. It's going to change the whole landscape. It's going to be beautiful. And now we get to the second point. So that was the return of the king. Now we get into the rule of the king. What's it going to look like when he is ruling? Well, it's going to be beautiful with living water. But verse 9 says... <clears throat> And the Lord shall be king over all the earth in that day. There shall be one Lord and his name one. Can you imagine living in a day where everyone worships Jesus Christ? Can you imagine when there's only one religion? Can you imagine living in a day where there's only one truth? Well, we live in that day. There is only one truth. Okay. But can you imagine living in the day when everyone acknowledges that there's only one truth? He will be God one king, one religion, the day of relativism is over. The day of your truth, your truth, your truth, my truth, it's over. And it's this day, I am the truth, the way and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me, Jesus said. All verse 9 tells us there's going to be one king, one Lord. Verse 10 tells us there's going to be a huge landscape change. The whole area is going to get a tummy tuck, you might say. Look at this. This is crazy to think about. All the land shall be as a plain from Geba to Rimon, south of Jerusalem. Okay, the word plain there is the word in Hebrew, Aruba, if I said that right, Aruba. It's translated as plain. It has to do with a plain that's a very low valley. All right, so God's going to lower all of the land from north to south. Geba is north. What did it say? Uh, Got to get that right. Verse, yeah, yeah, Geba is north. Rimon is south. So from north to south, he's going to just level it all. Now there's some mountainous areas there. This earthquake is going to flatten it and lower all the land around Jerusalem. Thus, you read on and you see, lifting Jerusalem. And it, Jerusalem, shall be lifted up and inhabited in her place. 
from Benjamin's gate under the plate, and we'll get back to that moment. So Jerusalem will be lifted up. Well, what is that talking about? He's going to flatten out the rest. He's going to put water through it. It's going to be green and lush, but Jerusalem will be set up like it's never been set up ever before. The landscape in this time will be unrecognizable. If you had lived there before, and you thankfully did not go to the Battle of Armageddon, and you come back later, as we're going to see, some nations will do, they'll come back yearly. That's a couple of verses down. They're going to come back yearly and go, what happened here? Well, the Lord rearranged the furniture, big time, lifting Jerusalem up and flattening everything around it and beautiful rivers. And it is now going to be the most beautiful place on this earth. And he mentions this. It's in there, so we've got to mention it. He mentions all the various gates. Look at that. Benjamin's gate, onto the place of the first gate, the corner gate, from the tower of Hananiel, onto the king's wine presses. That does not mean that much to you and me. Maybe it does to you. Talk to me afterwards. Uh, But it would mean something to these people who heard this for the first time. Who is he writing to? Zechariah is writing to builders. He's writing to builders who have been commissioned to go back to a city that is destroyed. And the first task is to rebuild a temple. They started rebuilding that temple. Then they got discouraged. They quit. They got just absorbed into the community. They started getting into sin and idolatry as has been their habit to do. But they want to rebuild the temple. They want to rebuild the walls. They want this thing to thrive again. We know Ezra and Nehemiah come and they do exactly that. They rebuild the temple. They rebuild the walls. And it all is exactly as it was supposed to be. So why does he call this out? He's talking to the builders. And he's trying to encourage them. What you see as rubble, I see one day lifted up. Everything else is flattened. No, your walls, your city will not be flattened forever. The Benjamin's gate and the corner gate, and I don't even know what the stuff is. It's all going to be there in all of its glory, right where it's supposed to be lifted up. This is a little, a little phrase, or a couple of phrases here that you and I could easily gloss over, but this would not have been glossed over by them. This would have encouraged them because they see that foundation still flattened. They think about where the gates are supposed to go, where the wall is supposed to go. And this, I guarantee you, got their imagination going and got them thinking, it's time to rise up and build. It's time to finish the work that God has told us to do. He wanted them to take courage and be faithful in that work. And he says in verse 11 that the land will be safely inhabited both within and without. Verse 11, the men shall dwell in it There shall be no more utter destruction, but Jerusalem shall be safely inhabited. Finally, there will be peace. Jesus will rule and there will be peace. Zechariah 2.4 talked about this. They will spill over Jerusalem. The, The city won't even be able to contain them all. They'll be in all of that lush, fertile land when he rules as king. We saw the return of the king. We saw the rule of the king. Now the retribution of the king. Verse 12. And this shall be the plague. Now, wait a minute. Why are we talking about plagues? I thought we were talking about peace and no destruction. Remember how how these guys tell stories? Same way you and I tell stories. Let me tell you about this. Oh, you know what? It's a detail I forgot. Let me back up. Give you another detail. So he's backing up. So he talked about the day of the Lord. And he talked about how God is going to destroy these nations and save his own. And then set up this wonderful kingdom. But there's a couple more details I want to tell you about that plague. Let me back up over here. So now we're back again. You got that? Verse 16, uh, sorry, verse 12. And this shall be the plague wherewith the Lord will smite all the people that have fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh shall consume away while they stand upon their feet. Their eyes shall consume away in their holes and their tongue shall consume away in their mouth. That is gross. That's a rough verse. I read this, I was like, boy, I gotta read this on Sunday. (laughs) I I gotta read this and talk about it. I don't really like this. But what's he saying? What, what he just described is death. He just described the process that's taking place in caskets all over the world right now. Okay, the, the flesh consumes away, the eyes consume away, everything consumes away, and it's usually a process of time. What's going to happen here is that process is going to happen just like that. God's going to withdraw the life from them. You know, our, our life is on loan from God. He can withdraw it whenever he wants. And in this case, he's going to withdraw it so fast 
that the process of death and decay will take place before they even hit the ground while they're standing on their feet. Whew, gone. That's what this plague shall be. So for some who fought against the Lord, they will die in the plague. Skip down to verse 15. And so shall the plague be of the horse and the mule and the camel and the ass and the beast that shall be in these tents as this plague. So the plague will cover them and their animals. Wow. Go back to verse 13. It shall come to pass in that day that a great tumult from the Lord shall be among them and they shall lay hold every one on the hand of his neighbor and his hand shall rise up against the hand of his neighbor. Now we've seen this already in the Old Testament, several battles, Gideon, when he fought Midian, that's what happened. They ended up getting confused and, and the enemies fought themselves. Well, it's going to happen again. So some will die with this plague along with their animals. Others will kill themselves with the confusion of the tumult. And the third part, verse 14, Judah also shall fight Jerusalem and the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together. Now this reminds me of chapter 12. Remember chapter 12 talked about Judah, Judah being the first to fight. We, uh, maybe you don't remember. We talked about it. It's in there. Go back and look at it. All right, Judah will be the first to fight. Well, here he is. He's, he's, he's re-emphasizing that again. Judah will also fight at Jerusalem and he's gonna, he's gonna, Judah is gonna be divinely helped. And all the wealth of all the heathen round about shall be gathered together, gold and silver and apparel in great abundance. While all that spoil that they were counting in verse 1. Remember verse 1? All the spoil will be divided in the midst of thee. Yep, and it's going to stay right there, but it's not going to be yours. That's going to Judah. All the wealth of the world will be gathered there. So many people chasing wealth when God's got it all under control. And he's going to gather it all to himself one day. Not that he needs it, but that's where it's going to be. This is the retribution of the king. We saw the, the, reign, I'm sorry, we saw the, the return of the king, the rule of the king, the retribution of the king. And now verse 16, the righteousness of the king. And it shall come to pass that every one that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall even go up from year to year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of tabernacles. This is encouraging to me because it shows me not everybody gets killed. Praise the Lord for that. <clears throat> Again, those people who just want to say, God is the God of genocide. He just wants to obliterate the earth. No. He deals with those who come to destroy his people. He doesn't wipe out everybody. The verse says there's going to be a believing remnant from all of these nations that will come to Jerusalem and worship every year. And they'll, they'll, they'll do this at the, the, the Feast of Tabernacles. What was the Feast of Tabernacles all about? It was, uh, it was talking about God dwelling with his people. When they were out in the tents in the wilderness, they, they, they dwelt in tents, but God dwelt with them in a tent. And they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles back then. Now they'll do it again, but he'll be with them literally in bodily form as Jesus, the Lord, the King. So they will do this. And he is going to continue to rule with a rod of iron. Look at verse 17. It shall come to pass that whoso will not come up of all the families of the earth unto Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, even upon them shall be no rain. He is going to rule and he'll say, look, I'm, I am the way, the truth, and life. You have to worship me. And if somebody says, well, that's a long trip. We're not going. We're not going to make it this year, Lord. Sorry. He says, okay, well, uh, there's not going to be any rain this year. Sorry. Well, what about Egypt? Egypt doesn't need rain. They've got the Nile. They've got all of this lush whatever. You know, Egypt, what about them? Well, that's the next verse. And if the family of Egypt go not up and come not and have that have no rain, there shall be the plague wherewith the Lord shall smite the heathen that come not up to keep the feast of tabernacles. He will reign, he will rule in a literal kingdom on earth and those who believe will come and they will worship him, and there still will be those, after all this, there still will be those who will say, I don't want to do this. And God will still have to, to chasten. Now, we're almost out of time. We are out of time. We come to the last couple of verses. So this shall be the punishment of Egypt, the punishment of all the nations that come not up to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. There will still be punishment that takes place during this time with those who are living during this time. Verse 20. 
Powerful ending to a powerful book. In that day shall there be upon the bells of the horses holiness unto the Lord. Now, where have we seen that phrase before? We've seen it in the Old Testament. This was printed on the, Jew, on the, on the, the high priest's garment. I believe it was on a, a, uh, a plaque that was on his hat. Uh, it may have been other places as well. But the priest wore this. And the priest had bells around the hem of his garment. And he would go in once a year. Once a year into the holy place. And uh, it was a risky business if he had not sanctified himself and he wasn't doing right and he wasn't holiness to the Lord. If he was living a lie, they'd stop hearing those bells ring in there. No more ding-a-ling-a-ling. Uh, Jethro, you in there? <laughs> okay. Somebody pull him out. They'd pull him out by, a, by a, a, a rope and, oh, this guy wasn't holiness to the Lord. I guess he didn't make it. Uh, well, now the Bible says when God is ruling in the form of Jesus Christ on this earth, Holiness to the Lord is just going to be the culture. The bells on the horses will say holiness to the Lord. The pots and pans that they use in their, in their service to the Lord will all be holiness to the Lord. Yea, every pot in Jerusalem shall be, in Judah shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts, and all that sacrifice shall come and take of them and seethe therein. In other words, uh, everything that's not holy will be out of the culture. If that happened now, what would we have left? Can you imagine? What would be left? It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be beautiful. There's not going to be uh, this, this constant onslaught. You know, every day you get up and go to work, you are just going through the, the muck and mire of this world, and the, 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 the defilement comes at you through your phone, through your computer, through your radio, through your TV, through friends, through our own evil heart. It's just everywhere. God says, Everything from the horses to the pots and pans will be holiness to the Lord. No longer just one man on one day a year in one little room. It's going to be the whole place, praise God. But there's one thing I've got to close with, and it's the most important, I believe. This final phrase. <clears throat> and in that day, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Now, when I first read that, I thought, that's a weird way to finish. Come on, Zechariah work with me here. I'm trying to finish the book that I've been preaching all year long. And, you know, let's go out with us. Be faithful till Jesus comes. Or just give me something that I'll preach, you know. What is this? And I, the more I thought about this, the more I studied this, the more I, I prayed about this. this. This is an amazing ending. It says, there shall be no more the Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. This is the final chapter that's closing on the story of these people. And in this whole book, it all revolves around the land of Canaan. When I say the book, I mean the book, the books about their life, not the book of Zechariah, but the story of the, the children of Israel revolves around Canaan land. God gave them this promised land, but he made it very clear, your destiny is not to be like the Canaanites within the land. I'm going to give you a land, but you have a different destiny, a different purpose. I want you to go in there and purge that thing, push those people out, deal with them, but do not marry them. Do not uh, uh, join them. You are a special people. And the story of the Jews, the story of the Israelites through the centuries is one of chasing Canaanites all over, trying to be like them. You look at when they left Egypt, they, 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 they said, well, we want to go back to Egypt. Or, or they said, let's, let's worship God. These be thy gods which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. And it was a golden calf. Where'd they learn that? Well, that's what the Canaanites do. That's what the Egyptians do. That's what the world does. The Canaanite stands for the world, okay? And that's what they were saying. We want to be like the world. We want to worship the Lord who brought us out of Egypt. We have no problem saying that the Lord brought us out of Egypt. We just want to do it with a calf. Because that's what the world does. God says, no, you can't do that. And they went on and they came into the land, but they did not take care of all the Canaanites. And they, they, they buddied up to a lot of them. You fast forward to the period of the judges. What happened with the judges? Over and over and over, what would the people do? They would sell out to the idols of the land, the people of the land. They would get into captivity and they'd be destroyed. And then God would have to send a judge and the judge would come in and peel them out away from the Canaanites. 
Midianites, Philistines, all those folks, Canaanites. And they would only do it again and again and again. They just, they just had to be like these Canaanites. We want to eat like them. We want to dress like them. We want to work like them. We want, we, we want them. Ultimately, at the end of the book of Judges, what happens? They say, we don't want judges anymore. Samuel, you're a nice guy and all, but we want a king. Why? So we can be like the nations. We want to be like the Canaanites. This is the theme of the history of Israel. We want to be like the world. They got that king. He kind of disappointed them. David came. He was a king after God's own heart. After that came Solomon. And what did Solomon do? He was the smartest man that ever lived. Only he kind of left the Lord. And when you're smart but not spiritual, that's dangerous. And he did something that was very, very unspiritual but very, very humanly smart. He said, I don't want war like my dad. I want peace. So I'm going to marry into every single family of every king that could possibly fight me. And then I'm going to have that king's grandkids over here. And we won't fight. It's called joining affinity. It's It's a thing. They would do that. They would give their kids or they would actually marry themselves. And so Solomon had a thousand wives. A thousand wives. He married everybody who could ever fight with him. And he had peace and riches and prosperity. But he put Israel on the precipice of idolatry and then pushed them over the edge. The kingdom split after he was gone, Rehoboam, and then you had uh, Jeroboam, and you had north and south, and you had idolatry, idolatry, idolatry is the story all the way through Kings and Chronicles, and that is just who they become. They become these people who chase the world. They want to be like the world, and they get dealt with it, and they're sold into slavery. There goes Israel, and there goes Judah into Babylon, and then they come back, and that's where we are in this passage. They come back by the mercy of God, to rebuild the temple and rebuild the walls and and let this city stand for something again and get back in the promised land. And what do they do? They quit on the temple. They get absorbed into the culture. They marry the the, the people of the land, the Canaanites of the land. They give their daughters. And we read in in Ezra and Nehemiah, what's going to happen is they're going to eventually not even be able, their kids won't even be able to speak the language anymore. They'll be so secularized. This is who Israel has been. World chasers. Thinking that there's something there that I need. There's something there that God's holding back from me. There's something there that I'm missing out on. Why does Zechariah 14 close with this chapter? He's saying, you're not going to miss out on anything. Jerusalem's going to be the greatest thing ever. It's going to be lifted up. Everything else is going to be flattened down. It's going to be lush. All the world will come to worship there. It's going to be amazing. You're not going to miss out on everything, every gate, every corner, every little piece of this city that you're familiar with that you love so much will be there in more glory and splendor than you could ever imagine. But there's one thing that won't be there. No Canaanite. The world will not be there. And that is just how he leaves them. And he walks away, puts the pen down. By the way, in that day, there'll be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts. Pen goes down, he walks away, and they're left to think, who are we chasing? I'll tell you, their problem is our problem. It's the same problem. We chase the world. We think that we're missing out on something. We think that God's holding us back. There's something that God's not going to give us. God's got everything in store for us. You cannot improve upon the will of God. We need to surrender to him, be faithful to him, gear in and gear up. Yes, there's going to be things coming that are difficult. You see a lot of difficult things in this book, but if you cannot get hung up on that, you'll see some great things. People say, Pastor, what do you think about Christianity in, in America today? What do you think? Do you think we'll be able to, to keep our faith in, in, in jail? We're not even keeping our faith in church. We just need to do the, the first basic thing. Let's get, just get to church. Let's, let's pray. Let's read our Bibles. Let's be faithful. Let's build a work for God. There's a lot of takeaways we could say from this passage. Don't cower in fear. God can split a mountain anytime he wants to to give you a way of escape. Don't covet riches. Jerusalem's going to be filled with them one day. Don't quit. 
God's going to finish the work that he started in you. But this one here, don't chase Canaanites. God never, ever made us to follow after this world. He made us to impact this world for him. And so we conclude the book of Zechariah. It's a book designed to encourage faithfulness in the work. May God help us keep building that work for God. Lord, I thank you for your word. Thank you for this powerful book. Help us, Lord, to be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as we know, our labor is not in vain in the Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've got the best in store for us, your plan. It's, it is perfect. We can't improve upon it. Help us not to think that there's something in this world for us to chase. Lord, may we just chase you. The book of Zechariah shows us you. It shows us you in your first coming. It shows us you in your second coming. It shows us you as, as the forgiver, the redeemer. The whole book of Zechariah shows us Jesus. Lord, that's what Zechariah wanted to show his people. Chase Jesus. Don't chase this world. Be faithful. Lord, may we be faithful, I pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed. Let's stand to our feet as the piano plays. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, that's where it all starts, friend. If you say, boy, I don't know if I died right now where I'd go. Now is the time to accept the Lord Jesus. I'll be in the lobby afterwards. If you'd like to hear how you can be saved, I'd encourage you right now, just step out from where you are, head to the lobby. One of the ushers will take you into one of our counseling rooms in the back, and I'll join you back there in a moment and take a Bible and show you how you can be saved today. Don't delay. Come to Jesus, friend. And faithful Christian, would you let God work in your heart to surrender all to him, to be faithful and to work, not chase this world, but to chase Jesus. Take a moment and talk to the Lord. this morning. Uh, that was, believe it or not, that was shorter than this morning. Uh, it was the last chapter in the book of Zechariah. We had to get it all in there. Let's be back tonight at six, if you're able, for our, our life group time. I look forward to the time of fellowship. Brother Joe Black, would you close us in a word of prayer?